Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. It's a good note to sing as we come to the Gospels and look at Jesus once again. We are in Mark chapter 2, and I invite you to open your Bibles there. And over the course of Mark chapter 2, Mark shares four situations in which Jesus confronted the expectations of those around him, leading to direct questions about his ministry. And these conversations may not be historically chronological, but they do belong together thematically, as each conversation provides an opportunity to clarify who Jesus is as he responds to his questioners. Last week, we looked at the first of these conversations as Jesus demonstrated his authority to forgive sins as he healed the paralytic who was let down through the roof by his four friends. Today, we want to look at the remaining three conversations, all of which are sparked by Jesus' failure to live up to the religious traditions of the day. So let's read together Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 28. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look! Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, how we thank you for your word. 
Would you speak to us by your spirit this morning? Use it to draw us near to Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. You know, when we enter into relationships with other people, we are often confronted by a rather uncomfortable reality. They do things that I thought were perfectly common sense, totally different than I do them. It's one of those facts that can make the first year of marriage rather bewildering. And we have these expectations and and our spouse is doing things differently. And we find ourselves asking things like, you mean you're going to buy the store brand of cheese instead of the name brand where the real quality is? Or or you mean you're going to leave the water running the whole time you brush your teeth even though you're only using it for three seconds? Why would you do that? At least I've heard some people have issues like that. (laughs) And of course, these things only get worse when you invest disagreements with spiritual significance. You might ask questions like, you mean you guys did Santa Claus? Don't you know Jesus is the reason for the season? And when we make assumptions about how godly people must act, but wrap those assumptions with family habits or cultural backgrounds, it can lead to some sharp conflict. Just ask Jesus, who seemed to show little regard for the legal traditions that the scribes and the Pharisees had built up around the law of God, crossing the expectations of them and many of the people who came to see these legal traditions as how righteous people should act. Now, I think we should note at the beginning here that the Pharisees, as they were building these traditions, often did really have a desire to keep God's law. The legal traditions that they put in place were put there to help a righteous Jew from even being in a place where they might be able to break God's law. But there were at least two problems. The first was that God had not asked the people to keep these legal traditions and yet as they were passed down over the generations, the Pharisees began to see these, trans- these, these traditions with the same authority as Scripture and therefore the same obligation for a righteous person. And the second problem was that these traditions largely became focused on external lists of do's and don'ts without regard for a person's heart before the Lord. And given these two issues, it's not surprising at all that those rules and expectations would be a point of contention between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees. And our passage this morning describes three questions that are put to Jesus during his ministry compared to the legal traditions. And with each question, we'll notice that Jesus gives two answers. He first gives an explanation based on an analogy. And then he gives a deeper answer that reorients the people's expectations based on who he is. So let's look at each of these conversations in order to better understand our Savior in the kingdom that we are invited to enter. Let's start with conversation number one. You'll find it in verses 13 to 17. Now the action really gets started here when Jesus is walking along the sea and he calls a man who immediately leaves everything, his job and all his things, to follow Jesus. This is exactly what happened back in chapter 1. But to the ears of a Jewish person, this is totally different and utterly bewildering compared to what happened in chapter 1. Because rather than leaving boats and nets like what happened in chapter 1, this man leaves books and a booth. This man's not another fisherman. This man is Levi 
the tax collector. Now, a tax collector both handed over the Jews' money to the archenemy Romans, and he himself made his living by charging the people extra. So there's a double mark against a Jewish tax collector. Even Romans had such a bad opinion of tax collectors that one Roman author talks of his surprise at coming across a statue that a town built in honor of an honest tax collector. But add to that being a Jew who had agreed to serve the Romans at the expense of God's people, and it's difficult to overemphasize the hatred that Jews had for men like Levi. Perhaps the feelings of the French in the 1940s towards its own citizens who decided to gain by becoming informants for the Nazis, or Americans who agreed to spy for Russia might give us the closest parallel to how Jews would have felt about a Jewish tax collector. But notice in our passage that Jesus doesn't just give permission to a tax collector to follow him. Jesus initiates. Jesus pursues and calls a tax collector to follow him. And and the scandal grows when Jesus then proceeds to attend a party with Levi and all his tax collector friends. Now maybe as some background, it's helpful for us to realize that the Pharisees typically would only eat a meal in the home of another Pharisee, just in case a non-Pharisee might not have tithed on the food that was being served. So it's unlikely that the Pharisees would have eaten in any other home other than fellow Pharisees, but if they were going to go outside that pattern, they definitely wouldn't have joined a tax collector. For on top of all of the, the strikes against a tax collector, the tradition said that the touch of a tax collector would make a home unclean. And so a Pharisee would definitely not enter that house. And yet here is Jesus eating in a den of ceremonial uncleanness and reclining in table fellowship with those who were exploiting God's people. And you can see their wheels turning. A true man of God who cares about righteousness, he would never do that. So they ask his disciples, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, on the one hand, we have to grant at least some reasonableness to the Pharisees' questions. I mean, after all, didn't Proverbs 13.20 say that a wise man walks with the wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm? And, and remember that if uncleanness would bar one from coming into the presence of, of God in the temple or offering sacrifices, isn't putting yourself in, in an unclean home, putting a temporary barrier between yourself and God? If you care about holiness, would, would Jesus really spend time with this crowd? But Jesus overhears their question, and he immediately makes a twofold response. He begins with an analogy to explain his actions. He says, but those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. It's hard to argue with the obvious truth of Jesus' statement, isn't it? But it did shift the expectations because the point revealed that the Pharisees were so concerned about their own reputation and their own righteousness that they had ceased to truly be leaders in Israel who would lead sinners towards righteousness. To whom should a teacher of God's law who cares about extending the kingdom of God go? Not to the holy huddle, but to those who need him. But to that simple statement, Jesus adds a deeper response. 
And he draws the attention towards himself and who he is. When he adds, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now the fact is, if the scribes and the Pharisees had really been thinking about their Old Testament scriptures, they would have known that the promised servant of the Lord, the Messiah, was not coming to gather up those who had perfectly kept God's law. He was coming to open the eyes of the blind, to rescue those in deep darkness, to blot out Israel's transgressions, to bear the iniquities of Israel, just to take four prophecies from Isaiah. Israel should have expected a Messiah who came to sinners. And if the Messiah of the Old Testament Scriptures is here, the real question is not which are the people who have lived up to the highest level of righteousness, but who will recognize their sin and come to the Messiah and come to the physician for healing. We have a a neighbor who moved in about a year ago from Greece. And shortly after moving in, he asked me what I did. I told him, well, I'm I'm a pastor. And he had never heard the English word pastor before, so he was trying to figure out what it was I did. And as I was explaining it to him, it finally clicked. And he said, ah, a priest. You are trying to get your way into heaven. And you know, I think that's something of the attitude here in the first century. The religious authorities are working hard, committing themselves to the law to get themselves into the kingdom of God. It's a very common understanding of religion that we work to get our way into heaven. Well, I explained to my neighbor, I said, well, actually, I'm a pastor because I don't think I have any chance of getting to heaven, which is why I need Jesus who died in my place to open a way to heaven for a sinner like me. Now that may seem obvious to people who have grown up hearing the gospel, but it exploded categories in first century Israel, and it still explodes categories today for anyone who has not met the Savior of the world, God, who sent his Son to willingly give himself up for sinners. It's a precious gospel that we have. And Jesus' response here gives us such an assurance of Jesus' welcome. Jesus' response here is such an urging and and a calling for us to come to him. See, Jesus didn't say, well, you know, if you're mostly righteous and are just working on a little bit of last remaining impatience or something like that, you can can go ahead and come to me. No, Jesus came to call real sinners. And none of our sins, even the detestable ones or the repeated ones, put us outside the bounds of what Jesus' blood is able to cover or what Jesus' heart is willing to cover if we come to him in repentance and faith. We've had a number of opportunities in recent months to talk about the importance of repentance and and obedience, but let's not miss the emphasis of Jesus' response here on the grace of Jesus to cover the sin of any who will come to him in faith. Anyone who knows their guilt and their shame, any of you who wrestle with your past or your present, come to Jesus The only qualification you need for access to the forgiving grace of Jesus Christ is recognizing your sin, repenting of it, bringing it to him, and resting in him and his salvation for you. In fact, I think 
based on Jesus' statement that his purpose in coming was to forgive sin, we could say that nothing could give Jesus greater pleasure than for you to come to him for cleansing from your sin. For just as a a doctor delights when the sick person comes to him to do what he was trained to do to heal them, so Jesus' great delight is for sinners to come to him that he might do what he came to do and forgive them with the cleansing blood of his life and death and resurrection for their salvation. So all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to him and find rest for your souls. I do want to add to that another application, particularly for those who have trusted Christ. And my question for you is, shouldn't our hearts reflect the heart of Jesus? Now, Jesus said he came as a light to the world, and then he told his disciples, you are now the light of the world. Jesus said, as my Father has sent me, so I am now sending you. So the question for us is, should we not also have the same love and concern for sinners that Christ had? You know, Christians often have a reputation as a group of better-than-thous who always condemn those who are unlike them. Sometimes that's an unrepentant response to bumping into genuine godliness. And sometimes it's a legitimate response to Christians who are arrogant and content to stand back and condemn the world around them. I was thinking this week of the testimony of Rosaria Butterfield. It's a testimony many of you have heard. And you may remember Ken and Floyd Smith, a pastor and his wife, who reached out to the local lesbian professor who had attacked promise keepers in the article in the local newspaper his pastor and his wife, who reached out to her in a letter and invited her to their home for dinner. And Butterfield writes that it was their genuine kindness and desire to love me and have relationship with me, not tied to the strings of how many gospel presentations they could give me, that drew me like Jesus drew tax collectors and sinners to himself in Mark chapter 2. So maybe we might ask ourselves, Is there any category of person, anyone we would not want to invite into table fellowship in our home? Are there those that we are not willing to engage with a Christ-like welcome? Do our words and actions towards non-Christians sound more like Jesus who came to call sinners or more like Pharisees who condemned those who didn't live up to their expectations and standards? Well, I want us to Ponder that as we hear the words of Jesus. But let's move on now to the second question. See, Jesus flummoxed the religious authorities by eating with sinners. But in verses 18 to 22, he threw everybody for a loop just by eating. God's law had called for fasting one day a year on the Day of Atonement. But the Pharisees made it their practice to fast every Monday and every Thursday. And they would whiten their faces and dishevel their clothes on those days to emphasize their commitment to piety and the affliction of soul. By the first century, it was a common expectation that fasting was a sign of religious commitment, which explains why some people, probably from the crowds, come to Jesus and say, look, every righteous person we know, John the Baptist and the Pharisees and their followers, they all fast. Why don't you fast? 
So once again, Jesus offers a twofold response. He begins with an analogy. No wedding guest fasts while the bridegroom is with them. Well, that was true in principle. Fasting was a time of repentance and mourning. It would have been inappropriate, even offensive, to fast during a wedding celebration. In fact, the Pharisees' traditions made an excuse and actually forbade someone from fasting during a wedding celebration that they were a part of. Once again, here Jesus shifts the ground to explain his actions, but in doing so, he challenges the people to recognize who he is. Because the implication of Jesus' words is, my arrival is a time of rejoicing. My arrival is like the arrival of the bridegroom for his people. Well, what day in the Old Testament was a day of great rejoicing? What day was it when God is the bridegroom would come for his people it was the day when the messiah israel's king arrived maybe you think of zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 that described the day when israel's king would come a day of great rejoicing and so jesus is pushing the people to recognize his coming as the coming of the bridegroom of his people as the reason why his disciples will not fast But having explained his actions, again, Jesus gives a deeper answer, this time in the form of a double parable. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on to patch an old garment. And the reason is simple. Any crafter today will know a new piece of cloth will shrink the first time it's washed. Old cloth is brittle. It has no stretch left. So the first time you wash a garment patched with a new piece of cloth, that new cloth will shrink, tear the the sewing stitches, and make the hole bigger than before. Most of us, of course, probably are not fermenting our own wine in goatskins, but the principle is is the same. A goatskin was stretchy. It had stretch to it, and fermenting wine would expand. But an old goatskin had already stretched. It was brittle. And so if you tried to ferment wine in it, the skin would rip ruining both the skin and the wine. What's Jesus' point? Jesus' point is that the kingdom of God has arrived. The Messiah, the Son of God, is here to fulfill everything the Scriptures had pointed towards. But the kingdom of God in Christ is not one more piece of cloth that just gets patched on to the ceremonial laws or legal traditions or twice-a-week fasting. Jesus, of course, is not at all rejecting God's law, but he's arguing that the law and the prophets were pointing forward to something. And when that fulfillment arrived, you can't just continue as is, as if the fulfillment were not yet here. A new wineskin, a new way of thinking in Christ, who is the fulfillment that the law was pointing to, is needed. Now, we may not have grown up under the Jewish traditions But some of you may have grown up under a version of Christianity that was reduced to a list of do's and don'ts. Some biblical, some extra biblical. And doing these ten things and not doing these one hundred things is not the essence of the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ. Of course obedience to God remains. But when we come to the kingdom of God in Christ, we are not handed a rule book that says you can enter if you keep all of these regulations. We are brought to Jesus himself who sheds his blood for us to cleanse us and sends his spirit on us to make us new creations. That is no patch. That is a completely new garment of salvation. And Jesus is inviting all those who listen to him 
to that new wonder of salvation in him. If I could make one more, perhaps, application for those who do know Christ from this interaction as well. The people's questions came because Jesus and his disciples were not meeting their expectations for how righteous people ought to act. And I wonder sometimes as we think about this, if like Jewish people in this passage, it's quite easy for us also to build up a set of man-made expectations for what all Christians ought to do and how all Christians ought to worship without considering the influence of our own background or preferences and expectations. And these can provide us with ample ground for intra-family squabbling and condemnation. And so my hope is that the example in Scripture here would drive us back to God's Word. May we rigorously hurt hold on to Scripture and Scripture alone and be on the watch for extra-biblical standards that we would impose on our fellow believers. But let's move on now to question number three. Jesus is not done yet crossing the expectations of the legal traditions of those around them. One Sabbath day, Jesus and his disciples were growing through the grain fields and the the disciples were plucking heads of grain and they were rubbing them in their fingers so they could enjoy a nice, fresh, whole grain snack that afternoon. Nothing in the story here suggests that this was unique. Nothing here suggests that they were starving and in desperate measures. In fact, it seems that this was likely a, a habit for the disciples. But now they're with Jesus And so the Pharisees are watching like hawks to count all the ways that Jesus and his disciples will break the legal traditions. And so like the oldest child who likes to call out their younger siblings for all their infractions, the Pharisees are like, oh, Jesus, look, 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 they just plucked some grain. Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, as background, we have to know that over the past two centuries, the Pharisees had tried to think of every possible activity that might be considered working and had summarized their conclusions in 39 categories of things that you could not do on the Sabbath. Now, some of those were obvious, like plowing or hunting. Other things were not so obvious, like tying knots. But one of the 39 categories was reaping which the Pharisees said, including picking any number of heads of grain. And so Jesus faces another question for failing to live up to the legal traditions. And once again, Jesus gives a twofold answer. He begins with an analogy to explain his actions. And he appeals to David, the anointed king of God's people, who didn't just cross a minor portion of the legal traditions, but who actually went against the direct instruction of God, asking the high priest of the temple for the showbread, which only the priests were supposed to eat, to feed his men in a time of need. Now this example of Jesus is fascinating. Because I think there's a number of things Jesus could have said. Jesus could have called out the Pharisees for their extra-biblical traditions. Jesus could have appealed to Deuteronomy 23.25, which made a distinction between plucking grain and reaping. But Jesus doesn't do either of those. Jesus appeals to David. And while Jesus' point seems to be that caring for people trumps the rigid application of the ceremonial rules, I think that Jesus is particularly forcing the comparison between himself and David. 
See, the natural response of the Pharisees might have been, well, of course, yes, but that was David. And Jesus would have said, yes. And now the son of David is here. If David, God's anointed king, had the authority to determine when it was appropriate to set aside the ceremonial regulations for the care of his men, does not Jesus, the son of David, also have the authority to apply God's Sabbath commands appropriately? Again, Jesus' answer is shifting the ground and confronting the Pharisees with their approach to God's law and with his identity as the Messiah who is to come. See, Jesus Jesus is saying, you need to know who I am. And if you know who I am, your whole approach will be different. And that's where Jesus continues to press because after giving the example of David, he then gives the deeper answer for his actions He charges the Pharisees with actually undermining the entire purpose of the Sabbath. He says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now it's important that we understand that Jesus is not canceling the Sabbath here. Jesus is not saying, well, the Sabbath was meant to be a gift for man, so whatever you want to do or whatever makes you feel good on the Sabbath, you can do. Not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is that the very purpose of the Sabbath was to be a blessing to mankind. It was a holy rest for their delight and their refreshment. It was a reminder that God created them and that God had saved them. It was a sign that God is the one who sanctifies them and makes us his. All that was wrapped up in this blessing of the Sabbath. Instead, the Pharisees have created this 39-step laser maze that every Sabbath day the people had to carefully navigate their way and make sure they didn't cross a single line with even a toe. And it had completely sabotaged the purpose and the blessing of the Sabbath. It had become a burden rather than a blessing. I think this is a good reminder for us too. From the beginning of the world, God set aside one day in seven as a holy blessing for his people. And while we know that in the New Testament there are plenty of questions that we could talk about, surely what should not be debatable is the command that God's people are still to gather with with our fellow believers to enjoy a holy blessing of coming together to worship one day in seven. So what is our attitude toward that commanded blessing? Is our attitude, you mean I have to come to worship with God's people every week? You mean I don't get to decide whether I want to do something else this week or not? Have we made it into a list of do's and don'ts and a burden? Or will we see it as Jesus sees it? That the gathering of God's people to worship him is my place of rest, of joy, of fellowship with Christ and his people, the reminder that he created us and that he saved us, the recognition that he is the one who sanctifies us, that this command is given to us as a blessing. But if Jesus' words hadn't pressed the Pharisees enough as it is, he concludes with the crux of the matter. He says, if the Sabbath was made for man, then surely the Son of Man The man who's been given dominion and authority by God is Lord of the Sabbath. And what Jesus is doing is responding like the parent who calls out that bossy oldest child. That bossy oldest child who wants to call out all the younger siblings' faux pas and fractions. And the parent says, young man, that's not your responsibility. That's my responsibility. 
And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, it is my right as Lord of the Sabbath to determine when my people are living appropriately under the blessed command of the Sabbath and when they are not. And so once again, Jesus' response lets his authority, his identity as the Messiah and the Son of God, hit the Pharisees right between the eyes. The question is, how will they respond to his claim? And we'll see that next week. And now we come to the end. And my hope is that in all three of these responses, we see the Son of God, Jesus, for who he is, the one who is offering such a beautiful salvation that so transcends anything that the legal traditions had to offer. I recently took my son Ben to a 76ers playoff game at the Wells Fargo Center. And before I went, I said to him, I said, Ben, you've, you've never been to anything quite like this before, have you? And he said, well, I have been to a Lancaster Bible College basketball game. As you might expect, walking into the Wells Fargo Center exploded his categories of what going to a basketball game looked like. But in the same way, this morning, Jesus answers his approach to the law, exploded people's categories. And they did so because they constantly pointed people back to who Jesus was. The Lord of the Sabbath, the heir of David, the bridegroom of God's people, the one who came to save sinners. And finding rest in him is so categorically different than trying to live up to 613 do's and don'ts. It is so categorically more beautiful in its offer of life and peace and blessing in the Son of God. And so my prayer this morning is that each of us come to him and rest in him and all that he is for us and our salvation. Let's pray. Father, you have given us your word. And here we see Jesus bumping up against and running into the expectations of the Pharisees and of the people in the first century in Israel. Running up against traditions and traditional expectations. And in doing so, calling the people, summoning the people to see salvation not in the burden of the rule book, but in coming to him, the one who came to save sinners, to offer himself that they might find their true rest and joy and hope in him. And Father, I pray that if there is anyone here this morning who has not found that salvation in him, that they would come to Jesus and rest in him this morning and know the one who came to save sinners. And how I pray that each one of us who might be distracted by this or that aspect of life or pulled away by this expectation or that, may we return to Jesus and find in him the one we so desperately need. May we come to him and find rest for our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.